like to welcome you again to Prairie View Christian Church, especially if you're a mom. Uh, we're very grateful for the moms out there, the women in our church in general, uh, not just because of the things that you do or the services that you offer, uh, but simply because of who you are, uh, because you are created in God's image and you are incredibly valuable. And we are so grateful to have you as a part of our church and to have you here worshiping with us today. So this morning we finish our time in the book of Judges. And so far, our time in the book of Judges has been pretty wild. We've read stories of chariots and battles and murder, civil war, shocking acts of rebellion, dark acts of wickedness. And to tell the truth, things don't slow down at all with the final judge we'll look at in the series. Today, that's a name by the man of Satan. Samson, sorry, I am all messed up on my words. That is a man by the name of Samson. We will learn that Samson is not exactly a godly role model all the time, but I wouldn't call him Satan either. So now, if anything, Samson's story might be the most tumultuous of them all in the book of Judges, believe it or not. And no matter what one believes about the Bible, you can't deny that the story of Samson is an epic story. The story of Samson contains questions of destiny, evil, war, love, betrayal. There are even some funny parts of the story, but there are likewise tragic and horrifying parts. And with a story like this one, it's no wonder that there have been great paintings and sculptures and music all centered around Samson, this larger than life figure of the Bible. But a good question to ask is, well... Who really is Samson? Is Samson a holy man following God's call or is he a charlatan running away from God's call? Is Samson a man of exterior strength, but deep down interior weakness? Is Samson a sinner or is Samson a saint or is he somewhere in between? Well, no matter what conclusion you come to, Samson is certainly more complicated than the superhero image that we often see portrayed in coloring books. But of course, we have to ask, like we do every week, what does the man Samson teach us today? So open your Bibles to Judges chapter 13. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, this will be found on page 146. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you when you leave today. But before we do any further reading, let's pray together as a church. Father, again, we are so grateful for this time that we have together as brothers and sisters in Christ to come here and be reminded of who we are. Um, we are sons and daughters of God himself, not because of anything that we've done, but purely out of God's grace, because Christ died for us, because Christ body was broken and his blood was shed. And Father, each week we go out of here and we hear different competing messages about who we're supposed to be and who we should be and what we should be doing. But I pray that as we come here every single week that we would be reminded of who we really truly are, the core part of our identity as sons and daughters of God and followers of your son Jesus. So be with us this morning, Lord, as we read your word. Thank you for the mothers who are here with us. I pray that we would do a good job of showing our appreciation for them. And I pray that as we leave here this morning, we would leave more eager to know you and to know who you've made us to be and what you would have us do and the incredible depth of who you are and your character. 
We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Judges chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So we start out the story and we see the same old song and dance of the book of Judges. The Israelites have sinned. They're under great hardship. And this time it's at the hand of the Philistines. And why not? Right. I mean, everyone else has oppressed the Israelites in the book of Judges. The Ammonites got a chance. The Midianites got a chance. The Canaanites got a chance. Why not give the Philistines a chance too? right? It's only fair. But there's something unique about the Israelites situation this time around. What's unique this time around is that in every other story, the Israelites have cried out to God. When things got hard, they cried out to God. When the oppression came, they cried out to God. When they felt hopeless, they cried out to God. But here, they don't cry out at all. It's complete silence. It seems as though the Israelites are finally completely, utterly, totally hopeless. And after all, the stories that we've read so far in the book of Judges span, give or take, 200 years. That's two centuries of on-again, off-again rebellion and hardship. And after all those ups and downs, you have to ask, have the Israelites finally given up? Have they finally just forgotten God? Have they finally come to the point where they're just content to be ruled over by their enemies and they're content to lose their unique identity as God's chosen nation? But then in the midst of this darkness, we meet a man, a man named Manoah and his barren wife. Now, we can certainly assume that her barrenness was a source of great frustration and great sorrow for them. Perhaps in their pain, they've stopped crying out to God, too. Just like the Israelites, what if they've given up hope? But then an angel appears to tell them when they least expect it, that they will have a son. He won't just be any son. He will have a unique calling from God. Specifically, he'll be a Nazarite, a holy man, a separate man, someone different than everyone else, a man who belongs to God. He won't drink like everyone else. He won't eat like everyone else. He won't even look like everyone else. And this man will have a specific mission to accomplish, to begin to save the Israelites from the Philistines. Now, his mother seems to believe that accomplishing his mission will directly coincide with his death. 
That's why she says that he will be a Nazarite from the womb to the grave. So we have this very special baby with a very special calling. Now, back then, most men who took a Nazarite vow, they did it voluntarily and they would only do it for a set period of time. But that's not the case with Samson. This is his destiny decided before he is ever even born. Now, when you hear at the beginning of the story going the way it is, you can't help but think of the birth stories of men like John the Baptist and even the birth story of Jesus, right? I mean, there are so many similarities. There's a miraculous pregnancy announced by an angel to the mother, a son with a special calling and a special mission. There are so many things in common. And just like John the Baptist, just like Jesus, Samson will be born. And Samson will grow in the presence and favor of God. But like John the Baptist and like Jesus, Samson doesn't stay a baby forever. We read about that in chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces, as one tears a young goat. You guys know what that's like, right? Tearing a young goat? (laughs) But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her and he had turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So as we're introduced to Samson, the adult. We don't really get a great first impression of this man. He decides that he wants to marry a Philistine woman. Yeah, one of them. Philistine woman. It says that specifically he saw her. And it later says that she was right in his eyes. Implying that he may not have just been driven by his mission. He may have been driven by lust as well. Now, his parents object. They insist that Samson, is this really the kind of girl you want to bring home to us? But he bosses them around. He gets his way. And little did they know that he was using this as an opportunity to take out the Philistines. Well, after that, they go down to the vineyards of Timnah to start the wedding celebration. But while mom and dad are looking the other way, Samson is attacked by a lion. But with God's help, he kills the animal with his bare Hands. Now, for an Israelite, 
Touching a dead animal would make you ceremonially unclean, right? Especially touching that animal with your bare hands. But Samson, eh, he doesn't seem to worry about it. In fact, when they come back around, Samson revisits the lion's body. Perhaps he wanted to bask in the glow of his accomplishment just one more time. Strangely, he finds honey in the lion's body. So he does what we would all do. He scrapes it out, he eats it, and it's nice enough to share with mom and dad as well. So, as we mentioned a moment ago, we don't get a very good first impression of Samson the adult, do we? And I mean, let's be honest, Samson doesn't seem to be the holy man that we expected from the time of his birth, right? Instead of being separate from all the people around him, he's driven by lust to marry a Philistine, marry into the enemy. He treats his parents poorly, talking like they're just servants or slaves. The man who's supposed to abstain from alcohol spends time in a vineyard. He kills a lion and doesn't care that he is unclean according to God's law. In fact, he even goes so far as eating honey out of the unclean carcass and shares it with his parents, making them unknowingly unclean as well. Samson is supposed to be this holy man, and yet he's breaking all the identifiers, all of the markers of a holy man. Now, to his credit, he's still looking to defeat the Philistines. That seems to be on the front of his mind, but he seems to be committing great sin along the way. And it might be a little bit of a stretch, but there's another famous story in the Bible where someone brought into this world by God for a specific purpose. They ate something they weren't supposed to, and they shared it with others. That story didn't end too well. But nevertheless, Samson marries his nameless Philistine woman, but the marriage only leads to chaos. Samson incites the Philistine wedding guests to anger, and they use his new wife against him, leading to great, great violence. Samson's marriage ends on a bad note. His wife's family is killed in the midst of his feud with the Philistines. Eventually, even the men of Judah, Samson's fellow Israelites, God's people, even they don't want him around. They know that he's nothing but trouble. The men of Judah betray him. They hand him over to the Philistines, the enemy. But by the power of God and the way Samson seems to have a knack for doing, Samson escapes. He exacts his revenge on the Philistines and ascends to become Israel's undisputed judge. Now, maybe by now, Samson will have learned his lesson, right? Maybe by now, Samson will be done sowing his wild oats. Maybe now he'll stop acting like some unhinged teenager and start acting like a leader. Start acting like the holy man that God always intended him to be, right? Maybe he just needed to mature a little bit. Well, look at chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. Not a great start. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. 
But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. In chapter 16, another nameless Philistine woman catches Samson's eye, and he has a little bit of fun. Now, so much for rediscovering his calling as a holy man, right? Doesn't exactly happen. And yet again, because of his own lust, because of his own sin, Samson almost gets himself killed. But then something very, very important happens that ultimately will spell the end for Samson. Samson meets a third Philistine woman, but this one has a name, and her name is Delilah. Such a beautiful name, isn't it? And Delilah, man, tell you what, she is different than all the other chicks. She is not just a prop to be used against his enemies. She's not just a one-night stand. Unlike the other two women, Samson absolutely loves Delilah. He really, truly loves her. But unfortunately, Delilah doesn't love him, at least not as much as she loves money. Thus, at the urging of the Philistine lords who have been trying for so long to capture Samson, Delilah begins to plan her betrayal. She tries to find Samson's weakness over and over again. The Philistines haven't discovered it yet, even though they've tried to catch him multiple times. But everyone has a weakness, right? I mean, even Superman had kryptonite. But Samson doesn't tell her right away. Bowstrings, new rope, new hairstyle, nothing works. But love makes you do crazy things, doesn't it? So eventually Samson decides to tell her the truth. About how to make him weak. Chapter 16, verse 15. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart, and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Long before Samson met Delilah, he had given up so many identifiers. He had rejected so many markers of being a holy man. He didn't separate himself from the Philistines. He married into them. He hung out in a vineyard instead of abstaining from alcohol. He ate unclean food and did not honor the laws of God. But now, in this part of the story, Samson rejects the one marker of his identity that he had left. The one thing left that set him apart. And it was the most obvious mark of his calling. That, of course, was his hair. 
Now, at this point, you can't help but ask. After everything we've read about so far with Samson, does Samson really want to be a holy man? I mean, does Samson really want to fulfill his calling? Does he really want to fulfill his mission? Or is there a little part of him, deep down inside, hidden away, that kind of wants to be weak? A little part of him that just kind of wants to be like any other man, the way he will be if his hair is cut. Well, Delilah pounces on the opportunity. She has his hair cut in his sleep. He's captured by the Philistines, and this time he's captured for good. His eyes are gouged out, which is ironic, considering how they led him into sin so many times before. He saw her and said, get her for me. She was right in his eyes. Well, now he doesn't have eyes left. Samson is brought out to entertain the most important Philistines at a party, all 3,000 of them. And this poor Samson is a shell of the man that he once was. Like that dead lion, he is now a harmless shadow of the warrior that he used to be. He's nothing but a carnival sideshow. But there's one thing the Philistines didn't consider. They didn't notice. They didn't notice that his hair began to grow back. And we see what happens in verse 28 of chapter 16. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in. So the people, so the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. So in Samson's final scene, his final act, he cries out to God for the very first time since he abandoned his calling as a holy man. Now, why does he cry out to God? Maybe he's consumed with revenge for losing his eyes. He just wants payback. Or maybe, just maybe, as Samson cries out to God, maybe in these final moments he has actually rediscovered his calling. Maybe he's rediscovered his mission. He tears down the pillars of the house, killing all of the Philistines present, including himself, just like his mother said he would. A Nazarite from the womb to the grave. What it comes down to for Samson is that he simply couldn't run away from the destiny God set for him. He couldn't get away from it. He could not run away from his identity as a judge, and God was going to use him even if he was kicking and screaming along the way. Now, Samson doesn't completely deliver the Israelites. Remember, the angel said that he would begin to deliver them. The Philistines would still be a thorn in Israel's side for years after Samson's death. And Samson definitely does not start a spiritual revival in Israel. 
You can read chapter 17 through 21 of Judges to see just how bad things will continue to get. And throughout the rest of the book, in those chapters, as the wickedness of Israel grows and grows and grows, a new theme begins to emerge time and time again. We see it so clearly in the very last verse of the book, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And listen to this phrase. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wow. In the same way Samson did what was right in his own eyes, and it led him into great sin and great wickedness, great rejection of his calling, Israel does the same thing. They do whatever is right in their own eyes. Now, in the big scheme of things, throughout the book of Judges, Israel simply isn't any better off now than they were at the beginning of the book. They're still dealing with a promised land that isn't really, truly theirs. They still find themselves guilty of great sin. The book of Judges has served to expose their sin all the more and their desperate need for leadership. The judges really didn't provide the long-term godly leadership they were looking for. They couldn't provide the leadership they needed. But maybe an earthly king will, right? That's the thought they have as they head into the next phase of their history. And, of course, earthly kings will fail them too, just like the judges did. Well, like Samson, believe it or not, You and I have a unique calling and a unique mission from God as followers of Jesus. Peter tells us that because Christ died for us, we are now a royal priesthood. We are now a holy nation. In a sense, you could say that we're all Nazarites at some level. Jesus tells us that we have a commission to go out and make disciples of all nations. We have this identity, we have this calling, we have this mission, and yet how often do we fail to reflect that calling? How often do we fail to embrace that mission? How often do we completely reject the identity that God has given us? How often do we find ourselves wrestling with our calling, tempted to reject it and chase after some other identity that seems right in our own eyes? But not only do we have something in common with Samson, Samson is representative of God's people as a whole. Just like Samson, they were all meant to be different. They were all meant to be set apart. They were all meant to be unlike everyone else. And yet they rejected it for the desires of their own eyes. And all too often, Israel's story, Samson's story, That's my story. And that's your story, too, in our sin. That's bad news. But here's the good news. There's someone else out there whose story isn't like Israel's story. His story is not like Samson's story. His story is not like your story or my story that is tainted by sin. There's someone out there who was set apart by God for a calling and mission And he didn't reject it. There's someone out there who wasn't distracted by the sinful desires of his eyes, but rather rejected sin completely and perfectly. 
That person, of course, is Jesus, the one that we're gathered here to worship in the first place. He's the one who embraced his mission and calling, even to the point of a cross. He is the holy man, not just a holy man, but the holy man. He accomplished his mission on that cross, not by killing all of his enemies, but rather being killed by them and dying for them. And Jesus, this deliverer, he brings in a kingdom not that would fail by the hands of earthly kings, that wouldn't fail by the results of sin and rebellion, but he ushers in a kingdom that is ruled by God himself, that you and I have a part to participate in right now, and that you and I look forward to when he returns in power and glory. This Jesus, he's the hero that we don't remotely deserve but so desperately need. And he's the true hero that God provided, who is far better than Samson. This Jesus, he doesn't free us from our worldly enemies, people like Canaanites or Philistines or Midianites or Ammonites. Jesus frees us from something far, far worse. He frees us from something far greater than earthly enemies. He frees us from sin and death itself. And ultimately, our salvation is not based on our ability to be holy, our ability to accomplish a mission, our ability to fulfill a calling. Our salvation is based on the fact that Jesus was holy, that Jesus accomplished his mission, that Jesus fulfilled his calling. That is our hope. And that is our confidence. It's not in men like Samson or Gideon or Jephthah or Barak. Or a woman like Deborah. It's not even in a king like David who would come after Samson the judge. Our hope is in Jesus himself, the one that God provided. And I pray that we would leave here this morning in complete confidence that he really is our Savior, that he really is our Lord, and that he accomplished things that the judges and the Old Testament kings. Politicians, you and me, he accomplished the thing that we could not accomplish. And that's reconciling us to God, our Father. Let's pray. Father, again, we read these stories in the book of Judges about battles and war and killing lions and pulling down houses and all kinds of incredible epic events, stories that are seemingly straight out of some kind of Greek or Roman mythology. But Father, ultimately the story that gives us hope isn't about killing lions or tearing down houses or defeating large armies or any of that stuff. The story that gives us hope The story that gives us salvation is the story where the judge died. It's the story where the deliverer actually went to a cross. It's the story where it seems like the hero loses. But then three days later, it becomes clear that the hero didn't lose. The hero won. Father, thank you that we can look forward to victory in eternity. Not because of the things that we do, but because of what you've already accomplished on the cross. I pray that in a world of chaos and unpredictability 
and instability and uncertainty, that we would keep in mind that in the end, you win. That in the end, you've already taken care of the most pressing problem of humanity. And that's the sin that separates us from you. In your grace, in your mercy, you have addressed that problem. And I pray that this morning we would leave here knowing it, certain of it, and believing it. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.